This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. Conversation is alive and well, and we celebrate it. And today I got a chance to talk radio with a venerable broadcaster and journalist, Bill Lichtenstein, who worked at a radio station famous not only in New England, but around the country, WBCN. Subject of a documentary, WBCN and the American Revolution, the incredible true story of how a radio station, politics, and rock and roll changed everything. And now the material in that doc including some amazing photographs from the era. It's all available in a book by Bill, same title, WBCN and the American Revolution. The music, the politics, the personalities, the culture, the war, the country, and one radio station that for a time was in the center of it all. Thanks for joining me and my guest today as we go on mic with Bill Lichtenstein. Bill, the book is fabulous. Can you talk a little bit about the documentary and its relationship to the book first before we get into it? Sure. Um, you know, it was a project uh, that really led with the archival research, uh, and, and the stories that we told were largely uh, driven by the archives we were able to uh, unearth, going back uh, of you know various bands and political uh, moments. Uh, but when we were done, there was so much material we could not fit in the film uh, that we decided to do a book to really be able to dig in, you know, deep on some of the stories and include a lot of the images and material that, that we weren't able to uh, include in the film. Right. Well, it helps that you're an alum. Can you talk about your association with WBCN when it started? Sure. Um, I was a, a listener, as many people were in its <laughs> earliest days when it first went on the air. Uh, probably started a little bit after it went on the air. But uh, in 1970, I was in an alternative educational program in Newton, uh, Mass, uh, called Tri-School. And one day a week, they told all the ninth graders, uh, go get a volunteer job uh, every Wednesday and, and instead of coming to school. So I called the station, and they were just setting up what they called the listener line, which is that the station had been so inundated uh, with calls from people, not just uh, with requests, but really people with all kinds of personal issues, a draft notice. Their roommate uh, was having a bad LSD trip. Uh, they needed a ride to California, and the station, you know, were getting calls from from uh, you know listeners like that, and it became too much for whoever was on the air to handle. So uh, Charles Lacordaire uh, set up uh, this thing called the listener line, where they would have volunteers answer phone calls, and that's how I originally started working there. Was on the listener line, and then started covering some news, and ended up with a weekly. A radio show. It's fascinating when I do talks locally, and I, I do a lot of them, and I mention WBCN, and I ask people, uh, do you know what those letters stood for originally? And they scratch their heads. Tell the audience here, because, uh, and by the way, it's a worldwide audience on podcasts, and, and there are many fans of BCN across the globe. What did BCN stand for? <laughs> BCN was uh, WBCN, Boston Concert Network. It was part of a chain of four uh, radio stations, when FM uh, first came around, right around that time, uh, because it was stereo and because it was very uh, limited static, uh, it was first seen, first and foremost, as being a good um, medium for uh, classical music. And a guy named T. Mitchell Hastings, who had been an engineer and, and made money with some of his inventions uh, around radio, uh, was building a chain of classical music stations up and down the East Coast, and he called them the Concert Network. Mm -hmm. So in Boston, it was BCN, the Boston Concert Network, HCN, Hartford Concert Network, NCN, 
New York Concert Network, and I think XCM was in Providence. Um, and so they were uh, classical music stations, but very few people in those days had FM radios. It was sort of a new technology, and uh, they were having a lot of trouble selling advertising, and especially in the middle of the night, nobody was listening. And that's when uh, Ray Reapin, who was a, a law student at Harvard, got the idea of putting college students on the air in the middle of the night yeah. playing rock and roll. And, and that changed everything. It's interesting, too, uh, when you think about the uh, the executives, and there are many pictures of the button-down shirt executives who ran the station, even when it was rock and roll. Uh, you know, there have to be adults in the room to, to put something on the air, and those yeah. adults from the early days. One of my close friends, and I know you know him quite well, is Ron Della Chiesa, who's sure. been a guest on the podcast, and he has fond memories, and his pictures are in the book, of the Boston Concert Network days. And before we got too far along, again, I'm being a little selfish because, I mean, I lived through this period. 312 Stewart Street. Yes. I had an office at 312 Stewart Street after WBCN left. That was, uh, and you even mentioned Flash's Snack and Soda Shop, which was where right. we were above. But uh, talk about the early, the early innovation, if you will, of the radio station, what it looked like, what it felt like. Sure. Um, so, you know, there's this radio station, Ron Delacchiesa was one of the announcers, and they were really flailing around trying to figure out what they could put on the air that would attract a listenership. Uh, and in fact, it was a commercial station, but, but towards the, the end of, of the run of it is a classical station, they were literally going on the air and, and, and pleading for money, like, send us a check or we're going to have to go off the air. Right. And um, so Ray Reapin approached them with this uh, gaggle of uh, college students, some of whom had a little college radio experience, but none of them were radio professionals. Uh, and again, you know, it's 1968, they all had long hair and bell-bottom jeans and, uh, you know, rock and roll T-shirts. And, um, and, and so uh, there was an immediate... Uh, dislike of that air staff by the staff of the classical music station to the point where they said, look, they really didn't feel comfortable having them in their offices overnight <laughs> when yeah. there was nobody else there. So Ray set up, he, he was running the Boston Tea Party Rock Club, which he had started first. And that's what gave him the idea for BCN because he saw these bands coming in, Led Zeppelin and The Who and Muddy Waters and B.B. King and and, and kids lining up to see them, but you couldn't hear that music on the radio. So Ray enlisted these college students, and in order to give them a place to work, he set up uh, a portable radio studio in the dressing room of the Boston Tea Party. Mm. So when they were originally on the air from, from 10 or 12 midnight uh, till 6 in the morning, uh, they were broadcasting from the back room of the Tea Party, and if there was a band playing in the background, you would hear them. Uh, or if, if the Who were uh, waiting to go on stage and standing around there, they'd grab them for a, a quick interview, and it, it was pretty amazing. And they went from there, um, they spent a little time at 171 Newbury Street, which was where the classical station was, but by 69, Ray assigned a lease on this space at 312 Stewart Street, which was an impossibly cramped uh, little <laughs> tiny office for all those people. Yeah. And, and then that's where it stayed um, until by 1973, unbelievably. Yeah. Uh, Mitch Hastings was still running the station and this dream that he wanted to move it to the top of the Prudential Building, which at that point was the tallest you know building in New England, and on the 50th floor. And so 
we we ended up on the top of the Prudential Building, this sort of still radical underground subversive <laughs> group uh, in, in probably one of the most corporate office yeah. settings you know in New England. There's some great pictures. You you got uh, Cheech and Chong standing out in front of the Pru. Yeah, and and I mean uh, we'll talk about some of the on air stuff that went on. It was fascinating, but. The picture on the cover of the book says a lot because the subtitle of the book is How a Radio Station Defined Politics, Counterculture, and Rock and Roll. And the picture is uh, iconic because it involves a huge swath of people, thousands and thousands of people protesting the uh, Vietnam War in a, in a peace protest. And what do we see in the sky but the peace sign delivered by a skywriter? And this was one of the great coups for WBCN in terms of national attention, wasn't it, Bill? Yes. Uh, you know, part of the uh, thesis of the book is that after the summer of love in 1967 in San Francisco, which is really all about, you know, how uh, love and maybe a little LSD will solve all the problems of the world, uh, the counterculture by 68 had moved really to Boston, where it became much more politicized, and particularly because you had hundreds of thousands of college students, many of them, you know, male a draft age with the Vietnam War raging, um, and, uh, you know, a, a very political culture. The, the anti-war movement really was sort of jump-started uh, here. The, the idea of having these moratoriums, which began in October of 69, where in cities throughout the country, uh, thousands and thousands of people, uh, you know, turned out to protest the war, began with a guy named Jerome Grossman, who lived in Newton. He was a businessman and an anti-war activist. Uh, he was involved, I think, with either the yeah with the Eugene McCarthy uh, peace campaign, uh, and he had this idea initially of having a one-day strike against the war. It was a little too political, and so then they thought, well, what about a moratorium? Like, take the day mm. and just think about what we can do to end the war. So on October fifteenth, the biggest one was in Boston. It was over a hundred thousand people on the common, um, and BCN paid a skywriter. Uh, from New Hampshire to come down, uh, flew down, and made an enormous peace symbol uh, mm. over the Boston Common, and in the back uh, behind it, the, the letters WBCN in the sky. And um, the photo was taken by a guy named Yale Joel, who was a, a very prominent Vice Magazine photographer, and it ended up, in those days, before the internet, you know, you, you, Life Magazine would, would appear each week and you'd comb through looking for photos of what had gone on the previous week. The, the center spread photo was sort of the prize spot. Well, that photo was in the, the center spread of the Life Magazine the next week of, of all these protests. And, um, you know, it, it was a pretty amazing, um, in particular because every school in the city shut down and there were marches from all over the city uh, to the Boston Common uh, for that demonstration. Yeah, in a way, you you point out, and, and this is a very accurate depiction, that WBCN, this one radio station in Boston that was so revolutionary in so many ways, was the social media portal of its time. There was no internet, mm -hmm. right? Explain more about that and how it worked. Well, it was a social media in the sense that it really connected people. Uh, Tommy Hadges, who was uh, one of the original announcers in the film, in the book, says... Uh, something I think it, it really gets to the heart of it. He said, we were seeing radio uh, less as a performance and more as a relationship with our listeners, which doesn't seem so revolutionary these days because, you know, public radio, talk radio, 
It's all about a conversation between the host and listeners. But going back to those days, Top 40 Radio, Classical, uh, Guy Lombardo on New Year's Eve, it was all about performance, and uh, it was not a two-way conversation. And BCN really opened up one of Ray Reapin's uh, ideas for this uh, new format was uh, to have a conversational tone and style on the air. And also with the listener line, that people could call up, uh, you know, and, and provide information. Or so oftentimes they just put live on the air if something was going on they wanted to talk about. Right. So it really became sort of a two-way conversation with the station uh, and the listeners, uh, where I think the listeners really felt like they were a part of it. And um, you know, in a way, that's sort of I think what people get from social media these days is that kind of interaction. Um, you know, which, which BCN provided. Right. We're talking with Bill Lichtenstein, who worked at WBCN in the early days. The book, WBCN and the American Revolution, the accompanying DVD, you definitely want to check it out. And you don't, again, have to be a Bostonian. In fact, that's what's interesting about this, the national implications. I don't know what was going on in other markets, but uh, they, they say to this day that BCN was a bit of a trendsetter. Would you concur? Well, it was in many ways. It was a trendsetter because the format... Uh, there were a couple of other stations that, were, that played rock and roll on FM prior to BCN, KSN in San Francisco, WNEW in New York, but with professional right, announcers. Right. This idea of having you know, uh, uh, college students and having a kind of conversational, what we now know is that sort of uh, you know, traditional FM progressive sound really, really came out of BCN. Uh, it was also a place where they were not running national commercials. They were all... Uh, pretty much limited to commercials for local businesses that were doing good things. You know, if if you were uh, selling uh, cigarettes or something, or you know, anything that was not seen as a social good was not allowed to advertise on the station. Um, and you know, that format I think had a great impact nationally. But also, BCM was involved in a lot of uh, ongoing uh, efforts, both in terms of uh, its support of the, the uh, second wave of feminism, gay and lesbian rights, um, that that really were central to that that period. That, yeah. that had a great impact, uh, I think, on a national level. For example, they had the first gay and lesbian uh, lifestyle show in 1973. Um, you know, really just unheard of in those days to have a kind of you know weekly show looking at gay and lesbian um, gay and lesbian community. And, and BCN, in fact, a little while after that, they had put a union in, and as part of it, because there were a couple, John Scagliotti and Andy Kopkind, who were gay, who were on staff, uh, asked that in the union contract that they uh, state explicitly that you could not be fired for your sexual preference. Uh, and and I, the story is, at the time, the management said, well, what does that mean? And Andy Kopkind, uh, who is now deceased, said, Oh, it means you can't fire me because I'm gay. And they said, "Oh, that's a good idea." <laughs> and it literally became the first yeah. union contract ever to have protection for people for sexual preference. So it really had an impact in a lot of different ways. I'm so glad you brought up the feminist issue because even back then there were, uh, shall we say, woke police, and even uh, the, the most uh, pure of hearts. <laughs> got in trouble. Uh, Charles, I believe, Charles Laquadera, the great yeah. morning man, um, got in trouble with the feminist group, and they didn't let go for a while. 
What happened there? Well, he, he was doing a public service announcement for Project Place, which is still around. In those days, it was largely focused on drug rehabilitation. And uh, he did a public service announcement. They were looking for volunteers. And he said on the air, uh, he, he taped the, the PSA that said, uh, Project Place is looking for therapists. So if you're a therapist and have some time, call them. And if you're a chick and you can type, they need your help, too. Yep, yep. <laughs> and so women who were at the earliest stages of Bread and Roses, which became this very important uh, second-wave feminist organization, uh, stormed the station. They dumped a box of live baby chicks on the desk of Leonard Cohen, who was then the general manager, uh, shouting, those are chicks, we're women. And uh, BCN, to its credit, ended up hiring in rapid succession three women uh, to be on the air, including Maxine Satori, who really became an incredibly important breaker of, of bands. She broke Aerosmith and Queen and uh, so many others. And also BCN gave them what's probably the first you know, feminist women's program. It was an hour show they produced looking at domestic violence and equal pay. And um, it, was, it was very progressive in those days. And um, so, you know, it came out of this moment. But... But it was not, you know, in listening to even ads during that period, the, you know, women were routinely called chicks or yeah. bring your old lady down to the store and buy her some clothes. And it was a very it, different... It, I guess that's the point. It is we were all going through this change, and BCN was going through with all of us and really sort of helped lead the way. Yeah, growing pains. Everyone has them. Um, let's talk a little bit further about... Uh, the, the evolution of the radio station through this period and sure. music. We could do a whole 10 hours with you on that, but I want to focus on the news and the information and how they interacted and intersected. And the key guy, and you write a lot about him and he's gone now, Danny Schechter, the news dissector. And uh, he broke a lot of uh, traditional rules when it came to news gathering, but he was very effective. Share with us a, a little bit of your remembrance of Danny. Sure, I was very close to Danny, and he passed away in 2015. Uh, in, in, you know, 1969, 1970, when he joined the station, uh, it was widely accepted that news should be uh, objective, uh, you know, not have a point of view, serious. Uh, you know, the evening news would uh, end on CBS with Walter Cronkite saying, and that's the way it is. Uh, and yet for young people, they were seeing very little of their concerns reflected uh, in, in the ongoing news. Again, before the Internet, uh, you know, there might be a newspaper article or a local news story on TV, but there wasn't a lot of coverage of the things that were really important to young people about the draft, about the environment, uh, evolving, you know, changes in, in uh, you know, civil rights. And so BCN started covering these stories but with a point of view, and, and that's what really set it apart. Um, and Danny began, and I worked with him on this, we began using not just uh, news reporting, but we would integrate comedy and music. And, and, and I've argued, and, and people tend to agree, that it really sort of paved the way for what would later become The Daily Show. And, and you know, people wondered uh, recently how Jon Stewart, who was a comedian, uh, could have been considered the most credible journalist in America. And I think, you know, what, what The Daily Show found out uh, and, and Stephen Colbert found out is what Danny sort of instinctively knew, which is when you take news and you put it in context 
and you make it entertaining as long as it's accurate, as long as it's fair, as long as it's balanced, um, and people can trust it, then in some ways it's it's even more effective and it's it's more relevant to people's mm. lives. And he really helped sort of innovate a lot of changes in news. I was I was really um, surprised, I guess, when I, I interviewed when he passed away, uh, Jonathan Alter, um, who was the Newsweek media critic for many years. And he said, you know, he used to listen to Danny when he was at Harvard as a student, and his years at Newsweek doing media criticism, he tried to channel, you know, Danny Schechter's approach to news. Um, he was, uh, could have been misperceived as, as advocacy journalism, but when I asked people about that, everybody seemed to agree. He, he was never uh, anything but accurate and, and precise and careful as a journalist, but he would tackle stories that other people wouldn't. Yeah. And, and I think this other issue, which came up largely during the Trump presidency, about how far can you go to state something, even if it seems to have a point of view, like when, when, when the president is saying something that's not true, is it okay to say that? Is it okay to say it's a lie? And Danny was a big proponent of that it's okay to have a point of view. You don't have to, that everything is not equal. And I think that, that more and more news is sort of adopting those kinds of Well, tendencies. he was honest about it as opposed to today when there's a, yeah. a tendency for news to say, we're objective and you really know they're not. I mean, that's just the nature of it. That's right. Because um, everybody has a point of view. What, what stories you cover, how you cover it, the language course. you use. BCN, for example, unlike almost any news outlet in America, when, when something would happen involving the North Vietnamese in a skirmish, a battle, people were killed in Vietnam, uh, it was routinely, uh, North Vietnamese were routinely referred to as the enemy. 25 enemy troops were killed. And, and largely because of Noam Chomsky, who commented on this, uh, we would never say that on BCN because they weren't our enemies. We were not in a declared war. This was, you know, a skirmish we were involved in. And, and, you know, to constantly be calling them the enemy, you know, that, that has a point of view that I think can't be missed, you know. You know, it's, it's so interesting looking. The pictures are amazing, by the way, and the stories that go along with them in your book. But um, you, you take a look at the impact of the, the Times on the radio station and vice versa, Bill, and the involvement of the government at that point, the FBI uh, checking in on various subversives and how they were connected. But, but the idea that uh, the station would feature Abby Hoffman, for instance, who at one point became a, uh, a man on the run, and he would check in with WBCN, yeah. and nobody knew where he was. I mean, I, I, my question is, we all know about Hoover's FBI, but what about the FCC during this period, which is still the— exalted ruler when it comes to licenses. What was their role in all this? We, you know, we, there was a lot of effort done to, to do the dance with the FCC because they would get letters saying, you know, what's going on with this thing and how come you're doing this and that. And It was a federally licensed radio station. That's what makes it so unusual that it, it went out on the limb on some of these things. Um, you know, when you look at, um, you know, people like Abby Hoffman or Bernadine Dorn, the Irish uh, I think it's fair to say, revolutionary mm. leader from the IRA, uh, John Lennon. You know, there were world-class uh, rabble-rousers that knew about BCN, and they, they loved BCN. And, and when they were in Boston, uh, they would visit because they knew they could say what they wanted to say, and it would get broadcast. And, and BCN was not there to sort of censor anybody. I, I think a lot of this with the FBI was 
that the FBI had the sense, like some of the documents we found, which actually had to do with the FBI surveillance of the station, uh, what they had right was that BCN you know, would put the word out and young people would sort of, you know, uh, respond if they said there was a demonstration or whatever. Uh, what they had wrong was, uh, I think, throughout that period was the FBI had been convinced, particularly the director, J. Edgar Hoover, that this was all connected somehow. Uh, we found a document that said, you know, an FBI document questioning, how is it possible that a leaflet from Brandeis University and one from Ann Arbor, Michigan have the same language as if there were some daily facts going out with, you know, orders, marching orders for the day. So the FBI was constantly trying to figure out, you know, who was calling the shots and where was BCN getting their directions from. And the answer is, you know, obviously no one. I mean, everybody was sort of acting on their own. But because of that, you know, they put a tremendous amount of time and effort into surveilling the station, trying to figure out what was going on there, who was involved. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was known, it was felt, you could feel it, you know. Ultimately, the station, you know, became a corporate giant and it made tons of money as it should have yeah. later on. And ultimately, it kind of went away. And that's why the it's fascinating, the nostalgia for it and the drive that Europe leading to bring these memories back. It's really impressive. Uh, but I wanted to get back to the music and some of the influences, because you, you spend some time in the book and in the doc about uh, people like uh, Bruce Springsteen, who was just a punk kid at the time, and yeah. uh, and the influence that he was able to garner just by associating himself with BCN and being available um, and, and there are a lot of artists like that who connected with BCN and, and saw their careers take off. Well, BCN, and it didn't occur to me until I was doing the book that this was not normal for radio stations. BCN would routinely champion local artists, whether they had a record label or not. They had a tape. If they came to the station and played live on the air, if they were good. And, and, and BCN would promote them. They would give them airtime. They would broadcast their concerts. Um, and I asked Joe Rogers, who was one of the original BCN announcers, where that came from. And he said something that was so simple but so true. He said, well, he said, we, we just wanted them to be successful. Why wouldn't we? You know? Yeah. But this was not normal. Yeah. But somebody like Bruce Springsteen, who, you know, had been very successful as a bar band in New Jersey, was desperately trying to break into uh, other places. And so at that point, he was going up to New York without his band and performing just with him and his guitar. And then they would start, they started coming up to Boston. And they really found a following in these, these bars in Boston, um, Joe's Place, um, um, you know, and a number of other uh, bars around town, uh, where they almost became like regulars. And so BCN would have him on the air. He came by and did his first radio interview uh, ever. He's 23. Uh, he says hi to his mom. <laughs> yeah. Okay, if I say hello to my mom. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it, it's amazing to hear, you know, but what, but the, what was amazing also is just it, when he opened his mouth and started singing, it was like it just blew everybody away. Yeah, yeah. It was just magic. And, you, and to hear people like Springsteen or Patti Smith or you know, any of these people really at the height of their powers as, as young artists uh, is amazing to hear. But Springsteen, you know, uh, th that era in Boston, in fact, he was playing... Opening act, he was opening act for Bonnie Raitt 
at the Harvard Square Theater when they were uh, they had music in what used to be the movie theater right in Harvard Square. Uh, and John Landau, who was the writer for the Real Paper Music Reviewer back then, wrote the famous review where he said, "I've seen Rock and Roll Future, and its name is Bruce Springsteen." Mm. And Columbia Records took that quote and you know put it in every magazine in America as an ad, and it really sort of would launched his career. You know, was in was in Boston. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. I, I I want to get back to my personal connection to this only in that I started my professional career in Boston on the AM side in 1978, but I was in college in the 70s, and I was not a fan of the music as much as I was the personalities and the understanding of what they were doing. And um, a a couple of things I point out to you that I found interesting in the book. One was looking at the pictures of the equipment. I thought, I get excited seeing headphones from 1971, including the ones (laughs) you're, you're wearing Let's see. What are those? Are those Sennheisers? What are you wearing on the back of that picture? Photo nineteen seventy. Uh, well, we used to wear Sennheisers uh, most often. The very light, foamy. Yeah, the light, foamy yeah. ones. <laughs> then the other thing that I wanted to mention, and you just touched on it, was this was as much a local community station on a big stick with fifty thousand watts as anyone I think we can remember. And and I just want to wax a little nostalgic. We don't have that anymore when it comes to traditional radio, do we? No. And, and when you say community radio, I think there's a sense that, like, you know, if you uh, needed help and called the station, that somebody there would, would help. And, and it's that kind of interaction you would expect to have with a small, you know, community radio station. Uh, but this was not like, you know, a low wattage station in the basement of some church. It was a 50,000 watt powerhouse that got out into five New England states. Um, you know, and so whatever they did, it really, it blasted out there. And, and I think that's what really, uh, was so unusual about it was the reach that it had and the impact that it had. And, and, and the, in a way that it's still hard for me to fully understand, I, I, I've said to um, you know people that the only other cultural institution from that era that's no longer around that I can think of that gets the same kind of uh, fawning response when you mention it maybe is the Brooklyn Dodgers. You know, <laughs> say the Brooklyn Dodgers, like anybody who grew up near Ebbets Field in those days. Oh, but you say BCN to people, and there's still this uh, enduring love for that station, which comes from, you know, I think it was just there for all of us who were listening to it in an important part of our lives and an important time historically. Yeah. And it just created, engendered such goodwill that it's still amazing to me to, to sort of try to, you know, to, to See it. Well, I I think that's what's lovely about the projects you've done, which are fabulous, both the book and the DVD. And that is uh, people do connect with radio like no other medium, in my opinion, because I I work at B's. I still work at WBZ. I've been there for 26 or 27 years. It feels like a Mm -hmm. drop in the bucket, nothing. But uh, the connection that listeners have, whether they be 68-year-old grandmas or 20-year-old college kids in 1969, is is palpable. And I think the the book really brings that home. As much as there was turmoil, there was real dedication and love by the staff and by the listeners. I think that's that's my takeaway. 
Yeah, and it endures. And, and, and when I first was had the idea for the film, I called Charles Lockwood Era up, who was one of the most prominent, you know, announcers over the years there. Sure. Uh, and he was retired at that point in Hawaii, and I said, I'm thinking of doing a documentary film about the radio station. Would you help? And and first thing he said to me was, "What? Who? 50 years ago, or 40 years ago at that point, who, who cares? And then he said to me, I'll tell you something, though. He said, there's probably not a day that's gone by uh, since then that somebody hasn't said to me, you know, that thing you said or that song you played, <laughs> it, it changed my life. Yeah. And when he said that, I thought, there you go. You know. Well, that's why we do it. And uh, we get a real charge out of those of us who've been at it for so long. And you're a, a major player here and a great archivist to put all this together. Um, so the DVD is available, WBCN and the American Revolution, of course, but the book also available everywhere. And uh, yep. it's a coffee table book that people will, uh, if you love radio or just are into history of the times, uh, you'll love it. Bill, thank you so much. It was a real joy getting together with another radio guy. Thank you so much. You know, I've listened to you for many years and big fan of all of your work, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. My thanks again to Bill Lichtenstein, documentarian, author, broadcaster. The book we've been talking about, WBCN in the American Revolution. Thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Chart Productions, where we produce this and many other podcasts. And as always, thanks to you, our growing audience around the world. So appreciate it when you add a rating and a review and remind your friends that they can download and subscribe. This is the place where conversation is alive and well. Find out more at jordanrich.com. Till next time, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>